really what you have here is a story of fragmentation in all directions. And the, the most obvious sign of that, of course, is that we are now almost certainly going to have the first three-way coalition at national level in Germany since the 1950s. But for me, one of the interesting things about Germany is that although you do have this very clear fragmentation, that fragmentation has not come at the expense of the centre. Once nicknamed the Schultzer Matt for his robotic approach to politics, Olaf Scholz has led the SPD Social Democrats to an unlikely electoral victory on the 26th of September, stunning Germans and outside observers alike. Scholz is now in a strong position to become Germany's next Chancellor. But given the rising electoral fragmentation of a German parliament, he would need to rely on a three-party coalition government, dubbed the traffic-like coalition with the red SPD, the yellow liberals of the FDP, and the Greens. Should that coalition go through, Merkel's centre-right CDU will be out of office for the first time since 2005. What does this new political landscape say about where Germany's political mindset is at? To break this down, we have with us a leading foreign correspondent, Tom Nottel, and the head of the ECFR's Berlin office, Jana Puglierin. Um... Don't forget, before we go, there's a plenty of things you can do to help us. You can do some very easy things such as liking the show, rating the show, reviewing the show, subscribing to the show, um, sharing the show with a friend. All these kind of really small things help us grow uh, week after week. And if you really want to show your love a bit further, we now have a Patreon account which should be in the description below right here in the description below right now it's just a way for us to help us pay for our digital and physical equipment but if they, if there's enough of you guys supporting us we will um, uh, look into having some conversations with you guys having some special content just for you so we're kind of uh, you know, putting our toe into the patron water and uh, maybe it'll be the first step to greater things so, to, we have with us two experienced observers of German politics. Tom Nottel, you're the Berlin bureau chief for The Economist, and the former Charlemagne columnist as well. And Jana Pugirin, you're the head of the ECFR's Berlin office, as well as a senior policy fellow. And you used to work as an advisor on defense issues in the German Bundestag, and I'm sure this will be relevant, uh, relevant background experience for us later in our conversation. Um, let's get right, in, right into it. I think the main takeaway of this election across international press, but even across Germany, has been the unlikely fight back of the Social Democrats, the centre-left SPD. For a long-term observer of centre-left politics, um, you would be excused if you're a little depressed because many of its European counterparts have ended up in political graveyards. And the SPD seemed similarly destined to political relegation with the rise of a Green Party. And yet, somewhat despite all odds, the SPD won the election. Um, Tom, how do you explain this comeback? Is it simply some CDU fatigue kicking in? Or are there some kind of larger lessons that other European centre-left parties might be able to draw upon? Um, I think that there might be some lessons, but I don't know if they're necessarily the ones that other left-wing parties 
would want to hear. Um, I mean, I think the, the sort of the best explanation for this election result, if we're looking at how the Social Democrats performed, is not really a very exciting one in the sense that um, the SPD and Olaf Scholz in particular ran an extremely disciplined and well-organized campaign. They basically didn't put a foot wrong, unlike uh, their main opponents in this campaign. Um, they managed to maintain extraordinary internal discipline because this does remain quite a, um, a heterogeneous party um, with a strong left-wing strain. And for those of us who'd got very used over the years to seeing the wings of this party feud publicly, bitterly, um, it was quite something to see how they managed to hold it together during the campaign. Uh, but the other thing is that I think Olaf Scholz was very lucky in his opponents, and in particular, um, the, the SPD's main opponents, the the Christian Democratic Union and its sister party from Bavaria, the Christian Social Union, because they, um, frankly, had an absolute shocker. Um, they had the worst results by a distance in history. Um, mm. Their candidate, Armin Laschet, um, turned out to be a terrible choice, although I don't think he was the only explanation for the result. Um, and it just fell apart from them. And of course, the SPD's win was a narrow one. It was just sort of 1.6 percentage point. It could have easily gone the other way. So I don't think there are necessarily grand lessons to be drawn from this win for other European social democratic parties. It's just about discipline, holding the line, and try to make sure that you have bad opponents. Jana, do you have any thoughts on that? Yeah, just um, a note of caution, because although I agree that this was a striking comeback, I don't think this is a huge breakthrough for progressive politics in Germany. I mean, it was not a landslide victory. Uh, the SPD just got 25.7%, and basically uh, one-fifth of the German chose the party, whereas Gerhard Schröder back then uh, had much stronger numbers. So just uh, some caution that this is not basically the SPD now taking over Germany. Mm -hmm. So apart from the SPD's rise, what is the general tale of a tape of this election? Um, well, I mean, we've mentioned the the collapse of the CDU-CSU, but for me that in a way is the biggest story of this election. Jana just mentioned the, the high score that the SPD had under Gerhard Schröder um, a couple of decades ago. Um, and the SPD have been in sort of secular decline ever since, even if they did stage a bit of a comeback this time around. And I think what you're now seeing is that basically the sort of this idea of the big tent people's party, um, the SPD was the first victim of the collapse of that idea. And now we're seeing the same thing happen on the centre right. So really what you have here is a story of fragmentation um, in all directions. Uh, and the, the most obvious sign of that, of course, is that we are now almost certainly going to have the first three-way coalition at national level in Germany since the 1950s, and that's not going to be easy to put together. But for me, one of the interesting things about Germany that maybe sets it apart from some other European countries is that although you do have this very clear fragmentation and smaller parties like the Greens or the Free Democrats doing a little bit better, um, that fragmentation has not come at the expense of the centre. So the, the hard right, mm. the AFD, um, Alternative for Germany, had a bad result. Uh, the hard left, Die Linke, had a terrible result, only just scraped into the Bundestag. And actually, the centre conceived at its, in, in its kind of broader sense, including smaller parties, did better than the last election four years ago. So the centre is holding, in fact, even growing, even as it fragments. And that's not necessarily a pattern that you see in other European countries. And well, precisely on that, unless uh, Jana wants to jump in and uh, on that point, but uh, turning towards the, the electoral 
negotiations, the, the coalition negotiations. Can you get us up to speed on where those stand at the moment and what, it, what is sort of the, the realm of possibility, starting with Jan and then turning to Tom? So after this election, there were basically three possible coalitions. Um, first of all, the so-called traffic light coalition with the SPD in the lead um, and the Greens and the Liberals joining. And then um, the Jamaica option with the CDU-CSU uh, in the lead and the same small parties joining. And then there was always this third option um, to have another grand coalition, although, um, yeah, I think that was not what, or that, that is not what uh, parties um, want, as not the SPD, not the CDU, but it's in the numbers, um, yeah. And I think um, now, what, what we see now um, is, is an experiment, because it's the first time that on national level we will see um, a three-party coalition um, of... Um, parties that are not used to govern together. I mean, the SPD and the Greens uh, for sure <laughs> have some track record. Um, but for the FDP and the SPD, it has been a long time that they um, had been working together on the national level, that they had governed Germany together. Um, so I think it's an experiment. Uh, but all of those parties had won uh, votes in this election campaign. And you see slowly, slowly emerging a narrative of uh, we want to modernize Germany together. Um, and yeah, it's our mandate now after 16 years of Merkel to, um, yeah, to transform the country, to, uh, to adjust the country, to, to modernize the country. Sure. And Tom? Um, yeah, I mean, it, it, I, sorry, I'm just trying to make sure we, this... If this is going to be published in 10 days' time, it's a bit tricky. I, I think we are on course to have a traffic-like coalition, um, which will be sort of left-leaning, but will have this uh, strong dash of um, yellow, liberal, um, free democratic influence. Um, and I think that it's, it's an interesting question, though, which way will this go? Because on the one hand, you have the optimistic take, which is that you have the Greens and the Free Democrats who are, um, they do pretty well with young voters, although they disagree on a lot of things, they're both quite comfortable with the narrative of modernization and change on things like bureaucracy and planning procedures and digitalization and so forth. Um, but on the other hand, I think it's quite easy to, 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 to have a more pessimistic take. Um, which is that these parties, including the Social Democrats who would lead this coalition, disagree on a lot of things. There's a low level of trust between them. That means they will have to nail down fine points of detail in what is likely to be a very long coalition agreement, which is going to reduce the ability of the government to respond flexibly to events and could, um, in a sort of a worst case scenario, sort of institutionalize or embed paralysis at the heart of government. You're going to have parties controlling ministries that are going to be at odds with each other on everything, particularly on um, fiscal policy, taxing, spending, and uh, and public investment, which is going to be at the top of the to-do list for the next government. So, um, it, you know, G German uh, Konrad Adenauer, his his electoral slogan was always "Keine Experimente," no experiments. And what's interesting mm -hmm. is that Germany is actually about to embark on quite an interesting and quite a big experiment. Yeah, but but. But no, Tom has, has made a very important point because, um, I mean, it's in our political system and in our political culture to always look for compromise because we have these coalition governments. So the Germans, they don't do revolutions or only kind of from time to time, but not very often. Um, and, and change is very hard to achieve. Um, and especially, I mean, this... 
this traffic light coalition now tries to basically rally uh, around one coherent narrative. And Robert Habeck has said it needs to be more than just yeah, an alliance of, of some parties because they're, they're there's no other option. We need to, to stand for something. But it's not like um, when Gerhard Schröder took over the, the, the Red-Green coalition and there was kind of a real plan, a project behind it. Kind of They, they, they wanted to invent the new left um, back then. And here, kind of this coalition needs to find its purpose uh, now kind of while, while running the country. Um, and yeah, it's an experiment. And I hope that Tom is right with his first assumption that um, there is a lot of positive uh, things about this there's this growing fragmentation of the of the 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 um the uh the uh, the electorate obviously with uh the two major parties now claiming a much smaller share of the overall vote uh 50 down from 80 in, in 2002 so what do you think that having a fragmented political uh, spectrum uh uh, says about Germany? Is it a generational uh, fracture that is that is being shown between the older voters who are primarily voting for the CDU and the SPD, whereas the younger ones are going with the, going with the Greens and the Liberals? Or what's uh, what's at play here? What do you think it tells us about the German electorate? Uh, starting with... I don't know if we are so fragmented because, as Tom has pointed out initially, the center um, got strengthened and the fringes lost. So I, I don't know. It's not about polarization or fragmentation. It's about different versions <laughs> of, the, of the center, I think. And um, what will be hard is um, to form this three-party coalition, and it's an experiment, but it's uh, working already quite well in some of the German uh, lender in Rhineland-Palatine. We have a traffic light coalition that is, I think, functioning pretty well in Schleswig-Holstein, we have a Jamaica coalition. So um, I, I, I think uh, we already have some examples that you can have stable and functioning three-party coalitions. And I, I don't see Germany uh, that fragmented or polarized. I think I, our other neighboring countries doing much worse than we do. Yeah, the, 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 um, the age polarization thing is quite interesting um, because if you sort of carved up the electorate into different age blocks, then there was a pretty straightforward relationship of the older that you get, the larger the combined vote share for the two traditional people's parties, the, the Christian Democrats and the Social Democrats. Um, and, you know, this is potentially a problem for um, for those bigger parties um, for, for sort of obvious morbid reasons. Um, it's, not, it's, <laughs> it's not obvious um, necessarily that um, people will stick with the um, the voting behaviour that they acquire as as young adults, but um, even if some of them do, then I think you you can state with a certain degree of confidence that the um, the, the sort of the future trajectory is for a continuation of this fragmentation. But I think again, like I absolutely agree with what Jana said. You know, fragmentation does not mean in Germany it does not necessarily mean polarization. And uh, it, the, the perfect thing to do is just to contrast Germany with some of its neighbours. You know, I mean, next year in France, we, we may well see Emmanuel Macron go up against Marine Le Pen again. Now that's polarization, and you don't yeah. have um, that sort of thing in. Germany. I think one of the questions, though, will be, you know, again, thinking about how a three-party coalition might work. Um, the consensus is absolutely key in Germany, and it means that democracy is very strong and robust and decisions enjoy a lot of legitimacy. That also has a lot to do with the federal system where municipalities and states have a big say over lots of things. The question for me, though, is 
how suitable is a system like that, which is sort of structurally designed not to move quickly, how suitable is that to manage some of the very big challenges that are coming down the line um, for Germany, both in terms of domestic policy meeting the, the, the needs of the climate transition, the industrial energy transition, the massive demographic challenges. And then I think we're going to talk about it a bit later, but on the European level, at a foreign policy level as well. If you have this sort of institutionalized blockage that we were talking about earlier, that might make it a little bit more difficult than we would like to see this next German government take the sort of decisive action that might be needed in some of these areas. I have a two finger um, because I forgot to mention something when it comes to fragmentation because there actually is one fragmentation that worries me greatly and this is the east-west divide in Germany. Um, the AFD has overall uh, lost um, but it's still going very strong in the former east. In Saxony and Thuringia uh, it came out first. I mean, not because it gained so many votes, um, but because the uh, the CDU uh, was so weak. But still, I mean, um, in all the countries or the, the Länder, as we say, of the former uh, German East, the AfD is uh, basically polling above 18 percent. And it's very hard um, to form coalitions in those countries. We've seen this in the past, especially in Turinga, because so far nobody wants to enter a coalition with the AfD. But I think this will also be a huge temptation now in the future for for the um, CDU in the East, because there uh, a lot of uh, voices have already expressed sympathies for, um, I don't know, opening up more towards the AFD or trying to copy their approaches. And, and this is actually a fragmentation um, that I thought we had long overcome, but that is actually cementing itself in, in recent years and not, not going away in any in any sense. Tom, do you have any thoughts on this interesting point about east-west fragmentation? Yeah, I mean, it, it is problematic. Um, and, uh, I mean, it was interesting in the aftermath of the election, talking to CDU MPs from the east, and in particular, in fact, you know, not to overcomplicate things, but the east itself is fragmented, and it's particularly, as Jana said, it's particularly Saxony and Thuringia, um, and to an extent, Saxony Anhalt, where you have this strong AFD showing, uh, which is kind of the southern part of the east, and the, the northern part of the east, less so. Um, but talk to CDU MPs from that part, that part of eastern Germany, um, and they were so, so angry with the way that the campaign had been handled, and in particular so angry that they were given, as they saw it, that they had this candidate, Armin Laschet, foisted onto them. Um, who was completely unable to mobilize support in the East. Um, I think at national level, you know, th this, it, this isn't necessarily a huge problem, but when you get into some of these state elections, and as Jana said, these coalitions that you have really, really difficult to form governments now in some of the Eastern states, and there is going to be, I, I, I think this is a long-term challenge for the CDU in the East that doesn't really have any obvious answer. Um, because the AFD has now established itself in some places as, as something not too far away from a people's party that can appeal to broad sections of the population is deeply embedded in communities. Um, and the CDU is there, is tugged between, on the one hand, the sort of electoral imperative to try to get some of these people back because they're really, they had a devastating election result in the East this time around. And on the other hand, the National Party, based in the Konrad Adenauer House in Berlin, which is saying there can be absolutely no movement towards the AFD whatsoever in the East or anywhere else, because as soon as we do that, then we will absolutely devastate ourselves in the middle and we'll lose voters to the Greens and the yeah. SPD and whoever else. And I don't think there's a real strong tension there. And I don't think there's any obvious answer to that, at least in, in the short term. That's a good pivot to the CDU. Um, the CDU has taken a severe beating. Um, it dropped nine points from 2017 
But if you go back a little further, uh, it had already dropped 10 points uh, in 2017 from 2013. Now, Merkel remains immensely popular. She's even more, even more popular now that she's not running for anything. But to what extent is she also partly responsible for the party's weakening? Uh, is it simply Armin Laschet's poor handling of the election? Uh, and he's now apparently heading out, out uh, from CDU lead- leadership. But do you think that the CDU will conclude that with this election, it will need to re-energize right-wing voters by pivoting away from Merkel's more centrist reflexes, centrist leanings, and perhaps maybe grant the CSU, the Bavarian sister party, a larger role in in the near future. Um, Tom? Um, I think the, um, I mean, assuming that they don't somehow rise from the dead and, and make it into government, um, I think mm. that the CDU, <laughs> I, think, I think the CDU CSU is um, headed for very, very choppy waters indeed, um, because uh, they basically, there is no common assessment inside the party of what the hell has gone wrong um, and how mm. what, and what sort of party they should be in the post-Merkel era. I mean, we, and we've seen that. Um, we, we, there's been lots of warnings of this in the last few years, right? Because Merkel stood down as CDU leader three years ago. Um, and we've had two um, leadership elections since then. Um, and in both of them, you had Friedrich Metz, who became a sort of a standard bearer for the right of the party, doing very well, but not quite well enough to win. But he yeah. represented the ambitions of a very large part of the party base to do exactly what you just described, which is to make this sort of rightward turn to rediscover a conservative identity um, on issues like migration, but also on, on fiscal policy. Um, but on the other hand, you have another part, probably the larger part, that says we need to maintain the market line because it's extremely electorally potent. The German electorate remained very, very centrist. That is how Merkel was able to do so well. She was able to get votes from places that the CDU had never got votes from before. And that to move away from that um, would be would be suicidal. And I, for what it's worth, I think that um, they're, they're right in that assessment. If you look at where the CDU lost votes, uh, or CDU-CSU lost votes in this election, they lost them in the centre. They lost them particularly amongst elderly voters to the Social Democrats, because Olaf Scholz was so convincing, at conv- uh, was, had did such a good job at convincing older voters that he was the rightful heir to Angela Merkel. And I think Laschet did have a disastrous campaign, but he wasn't the only reason for, um, uh, he shouldn't be the only scapegoat for this election defeat because the CDU-CSU has to do a much, much, uh, has to conduct a much more serious investigation into how it is that it failed to alight on a meaningful uh, post-Merkel identity. And I think it's now going to descend into a pretty bloody fight about exactly what that's going to mean in opposition. Yeah, and the fight has already started. I think that was breathtaking um, to, to watch during this election campaign. The, the degree of infighting I have n- not seen in, in, in a long time and not in the, the CDU-CSU, um, kind of Söder versus Laschet during the election campaign, then after the election. And I think this will continue because Markus Söder for sure has the ambition to become Germany's next chancellor. I mean, uh, he, he is um, basically in the, sees himself in the pole position 
for this. And, and I completely agree with Tom. I think it will be very tough uh, for the CDU, especially because um, not only Armin Laschet has now lost, but previously Annegret Kramp-Karrenbauer as, as, as the other person, uh, successor coming from the Merkel camp. Um, and now I, I, I see, yeah, the Merkelians, the conservatives, the economic liberals all fighting with each other. And at the same time, um, having a party where nobody knows uh, where it stands for. And that was also a problem during the election campaign. So nobody knows what the CS, uh, CDU's or CSU's ideas are for the future of Germany. Um, and they never, I mean, the, the, the union was never uh, famous for, for its ambitious party programs. It was enough that that the party governed, but I think now they really need to to reinvent themselves and, and tell a story. And what Tom said previously about the CDU in the former East, I think this is this will really be a problem for the party. How to how to unite it? And if you look at the at the SPD. Um, and the split of the SPD um, after um, Gerhard Schröder, I wouldn't rule out to, to see something similar now with the CDU-CSU. And just a footnote, actually, on, on the CSU in particular. Um, I mean, this might make me sound like a very naive outsider, but um, it's, it's, it's sort of breathtaking to me that there is not a conversation about, a, really, a real conversation about how these two parties, which we were reminded, as Jana said in the course of this campaign, that these really are two distinct parties, even if they campaign together, um, how to make this work better. Because the kind of original sin here was the decision in April um, to make Laschet the chancellor candidate over Marcus Söder, the head of the CSU. And, you know, people can have legitimate disagreements on whether or not that was the right or wrong decision. Um, but what I think is undeniable is that the way in, in which the decision was taken, which was literally in a back room of the Bundestag, um, I think in, in Wolfgang Schäuble's office at midnight um, in, in the middle of April, um, was really not a good look, you know. Um, this is meant to be, this is, you know, this is one of the biggest, most serious political parties um, in, in Europe, and it has no established mechanism for determining a candidate when the two parties, the two constituent parties, disagree. So I would have thought that it would be sensible uh, in, in the sort of the bloodletting that is now about to, about to proceed inside the union, at least to try to come up with a more systematic way of, man, of managing these disagreements when they arise, because it was not healthy in April. And if it happens again, and I'm sure it will happen again, it will not be healthy then. I, don't, I think one thing we know about the German electorate is that they don't like to see disunity inside mm. the party. So they really need to think more clearly about how they go through this process of choosing a candidate next time. Could it just be that it's a party that's been in government for 16 years, that is exhausted by all the compromises necessary? Maybe maybe the fact a uh, traffic light coalition is the most likely option might be a blessing in disguise for the city. Maybe they can rebuild an opposition and come back in four years, a regenerated party. Tom? I'm, yeah, I mean, let, you know, we'll see. I'm I'm a bit skeptical about this idea of renewal in opposition. You know, it sort of sounds good. You can go away and lick your wounds and without the responsibilities of government, you can think about what it is that you stand for and what you don't stand for. And maybe they will be able to do that. But, you know, Jana made the point earlier that this is not really a party that's ever been about sort of ideological visions or having a sort of strong political content. It's a party of power. You know, it's known as a cancellor behind the Chancellor's Club. Um, and I think when they're out of power, they're going to, I mean, we talked about it earlier, but I, I, you know, I think they're much more likely to descend into serious infighting about exactly what sort of party they're supposed to be. And what they're 
ultimately having to contend with is the fact that the old way of doing things where they could, you know, assume that they could get kind of 35, 40% of the vote because they were a people's party that had this broad appeal. Those days are gone. And those days are gone, I think, forever. It's not, it's not the fault of the party. This is, you know, much deeper things to do with the changing nature of um, society and of economic changes that um, all of these traditional big tent parties across Europe have, have had to deal with. But that creates difficult questions for the CDU um, to answer in opposition. And when it is you know, dealing with the humiliation of being outside of government, when it considers that it has the right to be inside government, I'm not sure it's necessarily going to be in a better place to answer those questions. So, you know, we'll see if things go terribly wrong for traffic light, which they could do, then the CDU CSU may be in a very good position to, to pick up the pieces in four years time. But at the very least, I think that, that that's an open question. Any thoughts, Jenna? Otherwise, we can move to Europe. No, I was just, when Tom started to talk, I was uh, reminded of uh, a quote from um, Franz Müntefering, former um, SPD parliamentarian, who famously said in German, opposition is scheiße, which means opposition is just pure shit. And yeah, that's, <laughs> <laughs> that's what, I, what I thought of when Tom started talking. Well, sh shifting gears to, to the European uh, stage, it, it seems like, Uh, you know, Angela Merkel obviously was center stage in, in European politics for much of her, her tenure. It seems like Germany was able to wield great influence through her ability to navigate um, European politics. What, what do you think is going to happen to, to Germany's, uh, Germany's uh, influence on Europe now that she's, she's out? Do you think that a, uh, that a Jamaica or a traffic light coalition is going to mean less uh, European uh, kind of a, um, uh, weight in, in European affairs, starting with Uh, Tom and then Jana. I mean, I, I don't know what Jana thinks, but my, my feeling is that actually the rest of Europe is perhaps a little bit more nervous about Angela Merkel's departure than, than Germans are. Um, and, and I mean, if that's true, then it's not especially difficult to, to imagine why that might be. You know, you, you look, look at all of the, the, the crises that the European Union has had to confront over the last decade, and you know, we'd be here all day if we listed them. Um, but, it, but you have one common feature, which is a common thread, which is Angela Merkel sitting at the heart of all of them, negotiating deals, forming strong personal relationships, um, staying up all night to, to negotiate with, you know, whether it was inside the club or outside with Vladimir Putin or President Erdogan of Turkey or whatever else it is. Um, and that's going to be gone. Um, and so, you know, it, it, it's not a straightforward question. Germany, by dint of its size and its, and its economic heft, is always going to be, as it were, the indispensable European, regardless of who the Chancellor is, regardless of, of what the coalition is. But the gap that Merkel leaves, well, at least in the short term, is not going to be filled by anybody. It's not going to be filled by Olaf Scholz. It's not going to be filled, however much he might like it, by Emmanuel Macron, who does not enjoy the same trust. Um, or support in some parts of Europe as Angela Merkel did. So we're going to have at least for, you know, at least in the short to medium term, we're going to have a void at the heart of Europe. Um, and that could be tricky because, you know, you do the thought experiment and you think through, you know, what if we were hit by a, another I don't know, round of market panic like we had in the Eurozone crisis 10 years ago? What if we had another migration crisis? You're not going to have, it's not about, Merkel's sort of political ideas or her particular vision. It's about her method and the way that she went about striking deals and forming these relationships. In the absence of that, I think it's going to be a more fractious place. It's going to be a harder, it's going to be harder to hold the club together. Um, and that could, if crisis strikes, 
and it may well strike from unexpected places, then it might be a trickier thing to navigate without having somebody like Angela Merkel at the heart of it. Yeah, I, I agree. I tend to wholeheartedly agree with everything. And I think it's important to emphasize that uh, a huge chunk of Germany's power in Europe is structural uh, and not personal, but that, of course, Angela Merkel as a person has made a difference. However, I mean, just um, remember, uh, kind of Merkel came uh, into office in 2005, and then shortly afterwards, uh, the continent was hit by the financial crisis, uh, which then uh, developed in a fully-fledged crisis in the Eurozone. And so it was Merkel's first term then, and she successfully um, managed it. So I think also newbies, new German chancellors can develop a, um, a pretty uh, impressive footprint on the European level early on, and Olaf Scholz is an experienced negotiator. He has been behind the recovery fund um, together with the French um, that has been developed not only in the chancery, but in the German finance ministry. So I, I think he already knows how to negotiate on the European level. And, and that gives me a lot of hope. Also, the three parties of the traffic light coalition are very pro-European um, parties. Um, so I think we will see a lot of continuity when it comes to um, Germany's overall approach. And still, because of geography and because Germany sees itself always as the spider uh, in the web in Europe, the, the country that brings everybody together, I think this inclusive approach will prevail. However, with one important caveat, um, or maybe that's more hope that is speaking than, than uh, but, but I still think that um, Merkel had a special um, understanding, a special sympathy for countries uh, in in Europe's east. Um, and for some reasons, I think she was never um, tough enough with uh, with Orban and Kaczynski uh, and, and those forces in Poland and, and Hungary. And I think um, here, uh, maybe Germany will be less inclusive uh, in the future, less tolerant vis-a-vis -vis a rule of law violations and more ready maybe to move forward, uh, not um, with everybody on board, um, what, what was Merkel's priority when we negotiated the budget and the recovery fund um, and the rule of law mechanism when she really insisted that it's uh, about um, having Poland and Hungary on board. And I, I could imagine that a traffic light coalition because of the Greens, because of the FDP, but also because of the SPD might be more ready to push harder uh, for those countries to, yeah, to, to, to comply with European rule of law standards. But as I said, that is maybe also me being very... There's definitely an interesting conversation right now in Poland with a, a constitutional court deciding that to affirm the superiority of the Polish constitution of EU law. But I think that's a entirely a different topic. And I'm afraid to open that can of worms, we should probably do an episode on this in the near future, Jorge. Um, but I want to bounce back on what you just said, um, Jan, on how all three parties in the traffic light are pro-European. Um, I think I agree with that, but I also think there's a different understanding in these parties on what being pro-European is. And I remember back in 2017 when the CDU was trying to build a coalition with the Greens and the uh, FPD, one of the main issues and one of the things that concerned, I remember Emmanuel Macron back then, was that the FPD was very much in opposition to any fiscal integration, um, to anything that would 
um, federalize um, the European Union too much and essentially ask the German taxpayer to contribute more for the for the EU. Um, on, on top of that, there is also going to be tensions about the, the, the spending on the, on, on the European Green Deal um, between the FPD and the Greens. Um, FDP and the Greens. How how do you how do you see these different issues working out? Because um, we are assuming here that the traffic light coalition will will go through. But if it does, how will these tensions work out in the future, Tom? Um, yeah, I mean, I think it's a good question, but it, it, you, you have to sort of break it down. It depends on exactly what you're talking about. Um, one of the first things that we know is going to happen um, at, European le- uh, at European level next year um, is going to be a discussion on the stability and the growth pact, the, the set of fiscal rules that determine what sort of deficits governments can run in their, their uh, debt stocks and so on. Um, and there's a strong appetite in countries like France and Italy um, to, for a root and branch reform of these rules. The argument, um, which is quite a compelling one, in my view, is that these rules were drawn up under completely different macroeconomic circumstances in the 1990s, especially after the pandemic, when countries had to spend a lot to support unemployment um, insurance schemes and you know, whatever else. But they racked up huge debts to do so. We're in a different sort of world now. We also have far lower interest rates than we used to, so those debt bur- burdens are less onerous than they were. Um, but that argument does not really find a lot of support in Germany. Um, And Olaf Scholz, um, I mean, he's a social democratic chancellor, but um, he signaled on several occasions during the campaign that he thought that the EU's fiscal rules, which were suspended during the pandemic, um, had shown that they were sufficiently flexible to respond to the crisis and did not need that sort of reform. FDP, the liberals, as you were suggesting, um, this is an absolute red line for them, and they will ensure that that red line is not crossed in coalition negotiations if you have a, a big changes to those rules. The Greens would like to change them, but my sense is that that is one of the things that the Greens know that they will have to sacrifice in the coalition negotiations. So I don't think for those countries that might be wanting a big change on that front, I don't think that they're going to find much of an ally in the German government. But on other areas, I mean, you know, Jan already, already touched upon the rule of law stuff that affects some countries in Central and Eastern Europe. Um, on the sort of broad cluster of topics that falls under the strategic autonomy rubric, um, which is in Germany's case is also partly about how it conceives its relationship with um, with China and with America. There, I think there might be more scope for sort of interesting conversations and um, and progress at European level, and, and partly because there are less differences between the constituent parties of the um, of the German coalition that we all expect to be um, to be formed in the next couple of months. So I think it depends on exactly what you're talking about. On the fiscal side, tricky. On some of the other areas, defense, security, strategic autonomy, rule of law, maybe a little bit more scope for, for, um, for advance and, and progress. I have an objection on defense. I think that will not go smoothly at all uh, under this coalition. Um, and especially uh, not um, kind of the, the French actually will not like what they see coming out of Germany, I think, um, because the Greens actually have opposed many of the initiatives um, that that we are applauding um, in European defense, for example, the European Defense Fund in its current form, um, the European Peace Facility, so the idea to um, not only train um, other partners, but also equip them. Uh, Greens are highly skeptical um, because they think there are not enough uh, conditions um, 
um, um, put on, 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 on the partners. Um, then when it comes to arms exports, um, the SPD and the Greens have indicated that they want stricter regulations. That makes it hard then to develop something together with uh, especially France and to have these joint armament projects that I think we need in order to uh, be more sovereign on the European level. And also when it comes to military missions, um, the, the Greens uh, weren't kind of head over heels, let's say, in the past four years. And looking at the performance of the SPD in the Grand Coalition on all uh, things defense related, I'm not so sure um, that we will see a lot of progress here or that kind of Germany is very much in sync, especially with France. Um, also, when it comes to doing missions outside the EU framework, I think this government then um, would be even more uh, opposed um, that than uh, than this current government or than, than, than the CDU, CSU, who were at least some people always were at least flirting with the idea to, I don't know, do more with the French in the Sahel also outside uh, the EU framework and the UN framework. I, I This might sound as a bit of a harsh question for, for the Germans, but as an outside observer, it seemed to me that, um, first of all, in the, in the main candidate debates, they never or hardly ever discussed foreign policy. I think they discussed it once in the very last debate. I could be wrong, but that was my understanding. It, it gave me the impression that Germany had not fully grappled with its international status and it hasn't been thinking in kind of strategic terms of its place in the world. Could it just be that the German electorate isn't interested in foreign policy? Um, or is there really something missing here? Are, are we missing something are the Germans not thinking more strategically, more critically about their place in uh, the international scene? Jana? Well, I don't, I don't know. I mean, I, of course, um, in Germany, every politician says that you cannot win elections on foreign policy. And I think that has been also uh, true in the past, with maybe one exception, uh, when Gerhard Schröder was campaigning on an anti-Iraq war ticket. Um, but, but... I mean, comparing this to other countries, to the United States, for example, did, did foreign policy play such a big role in the U.S. election, uh, the, the, the last one? Or also looking at the French election, Emmanuel Macron uh, might have made it uh, a point to campaign on the EU ticket. But, but overall, I don't know if we are such an outlier uh, in, in Germany. Um, I think people are less interested in foreign policy, and I think it's clearly a mistake to not make them more interested uh, and not to talk about it more often also in the election campaign um, because of course um, I think if people knew how much foreign policy or especially EU policy mattered uh, for their daily lives they, they would be more interested um, but it's uh, I, I think a lot of politicians still think it's very hard to sell uh, in an election campaign yeah I, I mean I, I think that that's you know completely right it's, it's obviously right and it's um, and, and exactly as Jana said, you know, I mean, it's, it's not just in Germany that the voters don't think strategically about their place in the world. There's hardly any countries, um, at least in the West, that think about that sort of thing at all. It was a shame that foreign policy didn't play a bit more of a role in the campaign. Um, there was a little bit of talk about Afghanistan because it was impossible to avoid when we had the chaos of the withdrawal. Um, that was about it. There was next to nothing on Europe, not nothing substantial anyway. Um, and But for me, this, the problem isn't so much that sort of Germans don't care about strategy or foreign policy. Um, I think it, the, the problem is more the way in which the kind of foreign policy elites in Germany um, are only very, very, very slowly 
um, adjusting their sense of Germany's place in the world to these very uh, rapidly changing realities that the country and Europe um, is confronting. Um, but what that means, though, I think, is that um, you know it means that we don't have, as a result, after this election, there's no real mandate to sort of rethink Germany's place in the world because it wasn't discussed and the parties didn't campaign on it. But there are some things that are going to be impossible to avoid. Um, in the next few years. Um, I mean, apart from the fact that I think it's a pretty safe bet that there will be one or other crisis at European level that um, a German chancellor and government will have to play a leading role in managing, uh, which by definition we can't predict now. There are other sort of deeper, more structural things um, that we can see coming down the line um, that are also going to be um, major challenges. For, for me, top. Of, I don't know what Jana thinks, but for me, top of the list is the relationship with China. Um, you know, for the last yeah. few years, um, it's been possible to detect a sort of subterranean shift in the way, particularly German business or some 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 sectors anyway, are, are conceiving the relationship as, as it's got more difficult, as Chinese competitors have climbed up the value chain and started to represent a threat to yeah. the German business model, um, as um, the, the, the kind of burgeoning American-Chinese competition has taken on dimensions that go way beyond the military into things like trade and technology, you know, things that Germany cannot hope to stay out of even if it wants to. So I think there's a growing sense from the people who pay attention to this sort of stuff that the German relationship with China and to an extent the European relationship with China is going to have to be recalibrated in many, many different ways. And that's going to be a slow moving process. It's a lot of the time it's going to be sort of below the radar, but it's going to be a big thing for the next German chancellor to think about. Angela Merkel, of course, pursued this path of engagement first throughout her chancellorship. I think she was sort of fascinated by China's rise and wanted to try to figure out a way in which um, it could be managed and brought into the multilateral system. Under, under Xi Jinping, that's looking increasingly difficult. And I think the next German government is going to have to rethink that approach. And what, for me, what's crucial is that it might want to stay out of that discussion, but that discussion is coming for Germany. It's not going to be possible for the next German government to stay out of it. Just a little two finger, because I think Tom is absolutely right here. Um, I think for Germany, um, with our small and medium enterprises and also the big companies uh, reliant so much on export, this whole crisis of globalization, kind of this growing um, power competition between the US and China is really uh, putting our whole business model um, into question and in danger. And that's why I think politicians will need uh, to, to, to care about this and take a stance because, yeah, because uh, our mercantilistic approach, we trade with the world and kind of compartmentalize basically security policy and trade and and everything um, will not will not work any longer. Um, thank you, Tom. Thank you, Jana, for joys of recording um, online. Um, I just wanted to recommend our listeners go to our episode 14, where we had Reinhard Butikofer on the CAI agreement, in which he talked a lot about Germany's relationship with China. It was a very interesting conversation. And if you want to continue that a conversation on China and Germany, I think that's a good place to, to head to. We will also be having an episode on uh, Merkelism with... Um, with two uh, uh, two journalists and authors in the next few weeks, so stay tuned to that. I'm sorry we didn't get to talk about Merkelism that much in this episode, but we will do a follow-up episode on Merkelism in the near future. Thanks a lot, Tom. Thanks a lot, Jana, for this debrief of the German elections and all the very fun speculation on the coalitions, although, to be honest, um, I think we all agree uh, that the traffic light coalition will be... Uh, going ahead and we all look very foolish in in two weeks time if it doesn't but uh fingers crossed we'll come back and re-record it <laughs> yes absolutely 
Thanks a lot to both of you and to all our listeners. Uh, see you next week. Well, so Tom Nuttall and Janet Puglieri are out of the green room. What did you think of this episode on the German federal elections, uh, Francois? Um, I was really happy I was able to do it. It was a very lively episode. There was a lot of back and forth between the both of them. Um, uh, a few good jokes here and there. Um, I want to start back on the SPD where we started. Um, because, uh, as I said in, in my question, the landscape for center-left parties is a little bleak currently. And Tom said, well, I don't think there's that many, there aren't that many lessons to be drawn um, because it was a very well-marshaled campaign, very disciplined campaign in which he benefited from kind of CDU tiredness. In fact, Armin Laschet didn't run a very good campaign, yada, yada, yada. Um, and I think uh, despite my yada, 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 I think these are, are good points. But what I find it interesting is his notion, the fact he put the, the concept of respect at the very heart of his campaign, seems to have struck a chord within the German electorate and maybe with a larger centre-left electorate in Europe. And the reason I'm saying this is maybe um, uh, Tom is right and there shouldn't be any lessons drawn from this election, but I was really interested in seeing that Anne Hidalgo, um, the likely centre-left candidate, if she doesn't, if she ends up running, or he might, she might actually have to support the Green candidate, but anyways... As of now, the socialist candidate would be Andalgo. And Andalgo has been using the notion of respect a lot these past few days. I don't think anyone's made a parallel of what's happening in Germany. But uh, I think when you're a historically large centre-left party, you are desperate for any kind of good news. And I think for many centre-left parties across Europe, what happened is good news. And so they'll be, try they'll, they'll be trying to draw any lessons they can. Yeah, absolutely. And in fact, um, I mean, we even have... We even have an episode in the pipeline on progressive politics in the EU. And I think progressive parties are largely going to be looking up to Olive Schultz and, and what he did to pull off his relative success. I mean, this is still a very fragmented spectrum. And I think that both of our guests kind of drove, drove the, the point home that this is, um, I mean, I, I was really interested uh, for my part on on what the election tells us about Germany. And, and you had a really good question there, which I asked. But you'd you'd uh, uh, read it up, and uh, which is about the, the the generational gap, right? It seems like older voters in Germany are overwhelmingly supported supporting legacy parties, traditional parties. I think Tom Nuttall called them people's parties, which I think is very telling. The fact that other parties, such as the Liberals and the Greens, are not people's parties; they are sectional parties. They appeal to people who are environmentally conscious or people who are liberal minded. They don't appeal necessarily as the Christian Democrats do and the, and the Social Democrats do to the German election at large. I, I think that's that's what I took uh, that's what I took his comment to mean. But I, I was really interested in this generational fracture. I mean, the the Liberals and the Greens, and I would perhaps even lump in the the the, the left, the Die Linke. Although I know they they have some older uh, an older electoral base uh, there as well, so so perhaps not them. But the Liberals and the Greens are young youngish parties, whereas the uh, social Democrats and the Christian Democrats are older parties. So I think that that's a very interesting fracture. I wish they delved deeper into it. Yeah, um, I. it seems to suggest, as Tom said, in a kind of very morbid way, but that polarized, not polarization, but the uh, fragmentation of the landscape into different parties, the Dutchization of the landscape of the parties, 
it's going to be it's going to be very interesting. Um, but there was a joke in in in, in the Dutch media um, where the Germans were complaining that the the political system was becoming fragmented into smaller smaller parties, and and the Dutch were kind of laughing it off because you know there's like five five parties, and the Dutch are kind of laughing because five parties is a is a government coalition; it's not the entire uh, parliament. Um, um, so there's a bit of a, a there's an evolution here, but I think more generally, to a large extent, EU politics is about building coalitions with people very with very different interests and very different backgrounds. And I think that's partly why Merkel was so successful is because she has this experience of German politics of having to build coalitions with very different people, people from the centre-left, people from the centre, people from the east for, the east for west of Germany. Um, and that made her a lot stronger. And I think perhaps... Perhaps that's why we're seeing countries like France, um, where you don't need to build coalitions, where a president decides tends to be a little frustrated with EU politics because they do not have this kind of culture of making those small coalitions, taking the time, making compromises. And um, I'm, I'm not saying one system is better than the other, but perhaps on the European scale, uh, this kind of experience of um, parliamentarian guerrilla of coalition building, it might be more useful. And I think the one president who I thought was overwhelmingly a failure, but had one forte in European negotiations um, was François Hollande. François Hollande had this experience, not through the French political system per se, but through the political system of the Socialist Party, was entire life as the first secretary, le premier secrétaire of the Socialist Party. He had to build coalitions with people who hated their guts. He had to build coalitions with centrists and Jean-Luc Mélenchon back when he was in the Socialist Party. And so I wasn't surprised to see him thrive in those very long negotiations over the, the fate of Greece um, back a few years ago, where he would always try to kind of reach a compromise because this wasn't the French political culture, but it was a socialist, uh, French socialist political culture that allowed him to rise to the to the occasion. That said, I thought Hollande was a pretty mediocre president, but that might have been his one saving grace. Yeah, and I think going back to to your point about the German system, one thing that I take away from this conversation is that it's it's a system that uh, places a, a high onus on. Um, on consensus, right? It uh, it 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 essentially uh, requires large majorities for decisions to pass through, whether in the coalitional phase, right, of forming a, a government, or in terms of passing legislation. The German uh, system is one that uh, requires large uh, electoral support and large majorities in order in order to get stuff done. And I think what what that does to the system is that it, it lends great legitimacy to whatever outcomes the system produces because they. Because whatever bill or, or legislation passes or a coalition is sworn in the office, uh, it, it, it is carried with it a large level of support. So it, it lends legitimacy to the system at the cost of making it more um, uh, troublesome to, to pull these coalitions together and to pass these bills. So it's, again, I, 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 as you said, other European countries don't have this culture of consensus. I mean, in Spain, for instance, has had uh, minority governments. Uh, they well, they they have a, a the, the current the current coalition government is a far is a, a center left and far left coalition government. But uh, relatively to the German system, I'm not sure that they would have been able to govern on uh, on on the number of uh, parliamentary seats they now have. It's it's a totally different system, and uh, and uh, and again, I think the German political psyche is also uh, is also uh, attuned 
to this uh, to this uh, to this need for consensus building. I think I think the Germans themselves think of their politics as requiring consensus, so they're uh, they're bound to. Uh, support coalitions of a lot, a lot, a great many different parties. I don't see a lot of people in Germany saying, you know, no, I wish that my party didn't go into a coalition with the other. Uh, I don't see that a lot of Christian Democrats think that about the Social Democrats or the other way around, because everyone is sort of uh, uh, attuned to the need for consensus. I was also staggered to see the the different um, nature of the election in Germany and the election that's currently happening in France, where the topics covered in both of these elections seem to be completely different. France's election right now, um, we will do an episode on, on Eric Zemmour, but it's, it's largely focused on identity, immigration, Islam, which had been major issues in the 2017 elections, but simply completely faded away. And we didn't even, t- we barely talked about the AFD in this episode, which is really a sign of how the election went. Um, I'm, I'm not sure if uh, the 2017 election was a fluke, or maybe this one, the 2021 election was a fluke, but it's very interesting to see the kind of contrast in France and in um, Germany. And on that note, we can wrap this up. Um, if you've been following to our last few episodes, you probably know what the next episodes will be because we've been, been spoiling them um, pretty much nonstop. Um, so I'm not gonna tell you what next week is, but you might be able to, to, to guess. Um, don't forget, before we go, there's a plenty of things you can do to help us. Um, every bit of help really help, really, really is very much welcome and um, really helps us push that much further you can do some very easy things such as liking the show rating the show reviewing the show subscribing to the show um sharing the show with a friend all these kind of really small things help us grow uh, week after week and if you really want to show your love a bit further we now have a patreon account which should be in the description below right here in the description below and um, right now, it's just a way for us to help us pay for our digital and physical equipment. But if, they, if there's enough of you guys supporting us, um, well, maybe we will um, uh, look into having some conversations with you guys, having some special content just for you. So we're kind of um, you know, putting our toe into the Patreon water and um, maybe it'll be the first step to greater things. Anyways, thank you so much to all of you. And uh, as always, see you next week.